This morning we'll be in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. Uh, you can find that in your pew Bible on page 309. We'll be in 1 Kings 17, 8 through 16. You can find it in your pew Bible on page 309. Well, as is my custom when I preach, I'm going to pick a random chapter from the Bible. I have to give you a whole bunch of context and then give you a couple points in the last 30 seconds that might be meaningful. As we plop down, I'm only semi-joking, as we plop down in the middle of 1 Kings, we've been walking through the Gospel of John, Pastor John has, not his Gospel, but you know the biblical writer. Uh, Pastor Joshua has been walking us through 1 Thessalonians, and so of course I chose nothing in the New Testament. But I did choose a narrative, so that's somewhat like the Gospel of John. But in 1 Kings 17, we plop down in the middle of a story. If you were to ask me, what is the book of Kings about? What are First and Second Kings about? Really, what is the whole Old Testament about? There's a way to answer that. Say it's about hope. Uh, you would quickly be reading through those narratives and you would say, Mark, I don't find a lot of hope here. And I would say, then you must be missing the God of the people that you read about. Because the hope is not in the people that the stories are about, but in the God that has called them to himself. When we read First and Second Kings, we consistently come up against human failure and human frailty, but we also consistently come against God's faithfulness. The thing that drives the narrative, the reason that it keeps going, the reason that there is hope in the book of Kings is because even in the midst of a dead people, there is a living God. When we get to 1 Kings 17, King Ahab is on the throne. Uh, there's only really a handful of good kings at all in Israel in the Old Testament. Ahab is not one of them. Uh, we, have, we will have just read, if you were reading through 1 Kings and getting to chapter 17, that Ahab has done more evil than any king that has gone before him. In particular, he has set up uh, idol and idolatry to the god Baal. And because of that, God has brought his judgment on his people. Let me read to you what, is going to, what God said would happen to his people if they were to worship idols. He says this in Deuteronomy 11, verses 16 and 17. Be careful that you are not enticed to turn aside, serve, and bow in worship to other gods. Why? Then the Lord's anger will burn against you. He will shut the sky and there will be no rain. The land will not yield its produce and you will perish quickly from the good land the Lord is giving you. As we open up to our text this morning, that is exactly what has happened. In response to his people's idolatry, God has shut up the sky. It has not rained and he promised that it will not rain for three years and he has spoken this word through Elijah the prophet. Elijah has just come on the scene kind of suddenly and he will be one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. He is there simply to speak the word of the Lord. He is no one greater than you or I. He is simply faithful to what God has told him. And so when he says, the Lord has said that it will not, there will be neither dew nor rain for three years, because it is God's word, there will not be dew nor rain for three years. And when we open up here, the rivers at this point have dried up. There is no source for water. The land is barren. There is no source for food. And we encounter a widow. 
And what we will see is that a woman whose life is defined by death encounters the one true and living God and life emerges. You see, the reason that God allowed the the land to be barren is he wanted the people to see with the eyes in their body the state of their spiritual soul. The land was barren, withered, and fruitless. So were their hearts. And in so doing, if he could make them see what was inside, perhaps they would turn to him so that not only would the land produce fruit, but they as a people would become the beautiful vineyard for his glory. And we see that he is able to do that in our text. Please read with me 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. Not out loud, just, you know, in your Bible. And please stand as we read the word. Thank you, Pastor Joshua. He was doing this in the back. Then the word of the Lord came to him, that is, to Elijah. Get up, go to Zarephath, that belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Look, I have commanded a woman who is a widow to provide for you there. So Elijah got up and went to Zarephath. When he arrived at the city gate, there was a widow gathering wood Elijah called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup and let me drink. As she went to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I don't have anything baked. I only have a handful of flour in the jar and a little bit of oil in the jug. Just now I am gathering a couple of sticks in order to go prepare it for myself and for my son so we can eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a small loaf from it and bring it out to me. Afterward, you may make some for yourself and for your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the flour jar will not become empty and the oil jug will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. So she proceeded to do according to the word of Elijah. Then the woman, Elijah, and her household ate for many days. The flour jar did not become empty, and the oil jug did not run dry. According to the word of the Lord, he had spoken through Elijah. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. So here we have Elijah faithfully saying what, uh, doing what the Lord has commanded him to do. And in this text, we have two scenes, and I'll give you my big idea. The first scene that there is that there is hopelessness in the face of death. In the second scene, we see hope in the God of life. There is hopelessness in the face of death, and yet there is hope in the God of life. And therefore, our big idea is this. We have hope even in the midst of death because our God lives. We have hope even in the midst of death because our God lives. Uh, we, have ho- we see hopelessness in the face of death. We have a widow here. Uh, and as I've already said, the whole context of this text is death. Death is reigns in these first few verses from verses 8 to 12. The land is dead. The rivers 
are dried up. She is defined by the death of another person. If you notice in the text, we don't even find out her name. She is simply known as widow. The the author is trying to get us to pay attention to the fact that there is nothing in this text that says life about this situation. Not only that, but when she encounters Elijah, the prophet that God sends to her, what does she say? She says, dude, I I can't can't make anything for you. I barely got enough for myself, and what I have isn't even made. I got a little bit of flour, I got a little bit of oil, and I'm here gathering sticks so I can bake a little bread so that we can have a decent meal, and then we're going to die. Her situation is hopeless. She has resigned herself to death. I don't know what your situation is. We often try to keep our distance from things like death, but there are times in our lives, perhaps now, and perhaps at some point in your life, and there will be a time in your life when death confronts you face to face. And the thing that you must remember is though it might look hopeless in the face of death, you have hope if you are in Christ because your God lives. We have a woman here defined by death. But her situation is hopeless because she can only see what's, not only because she can see what's around her and she has no way to produce food, she has no way to get water, but also the gods that she trusts in are dead. What do I mean by that? It's important that she, that Elijah has been sent to Zarephath of Sidon. It's important for two reasons. One, uh, the whole setup of idolatry in Israel has resulted from Ahab's marriage to Jezebel, who is from Sidon. So death has come to Israel from Sidon, and the worship of Sidon's gods has come to Israel instead of the one true and living God. So what happens? Israel dies. And God, in order to show that he is the God of life, he says, I'm going to go to the source of your death, and I'm going to show you that there I can bring life. But it's also important for another reason. There was the mythology at the time in this area. It's called the Ugaritic Baal Cycle. Now, if you just shut down because you don't know any of those words, just calm down. Bring, I'll give you a second to be shocked. Now come back. All right, you're back with me. All that means is that they worshipped the god Baal. And we have texts that tell the stories about what they believed at this time. They believed that Baal was the storm god and the god of fertility. What does that mean? It means that they believe that Baal, the god that they worshipped, he's the one who caused rain to come to give them water. He's the one that caused crops to grow, to give them food. Now, this story that we have about them tells a story about, well, how do you explain famine in the land if your God is real? Well, they had a story. And the story was that Baal got into a battle with the god Moth, which is death, and he loses. Their God is dead. Now the question is, how do you raise a dead God. As the story goes on, Baal has a sister named Anath, and she cuts herself. She bleeds for her brother in order to try to wake up the God of death to convince him to give her brother back to him so that the land might produce food once again, so that the people might be saved. She then descends into death in order to try to rescue him. She kills death, chops death up into pieces, grinds him into dust, and then her brother is saved. We see a reflection of this actually later in the story in 1 Kings. Later, 
Elijah is going to encounter 450 prophets of Baal. You have one prophet of the living God, 450 prophets of a dead God. And the thing is, Elijah says, hey, why don't you call out to your God? If he's real, maybe he'll listen to you and he'll send the rain and we'll be able to drink water and eat food and he'll bring us life in the midst of death. And what we see in 1 Kings 18 is that they cry out to him loudly. They dance around. They do all kind of stuff. Nothing happens. Verse 27 of 1 Kings 18, at noon, Elijah mocked them. He said, shout loudly, for he's a God. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he was wandered away. Or maybe he's on the road somewhere. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. So they shouted loudly. And they cut themselves just like their gods did, with knives and spears, according to their custom, until blood gushed over them. All afternoon, they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound. No one answered. No one paid attention. In the midst of a land that is dead, a dead people is calling out to a dead God, and there is no answer. Brothers and sisters, do you see the clear contrast with the gospel of Jesus Christ? That if you are facing death and you are facing what you think is a hopeless situation, you do not have to bleed to wake up your God. You do not have to shout louder because he might have thought that there was something more important to do, some more business to take care of than the redemption of his people and the care of his creation. We don't have to do that. How do I know that? Well, one, in this story, Elijah just says, hey, God, do your thing. And he comes down and lightning comes from the sky. He brings rain and produces water and food for his people. But I also know this because this same God is the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Instead of asking us to descend into hell to save him, he sent his son to us that he might save us. And when he sent his son to a dead world, his son died upon the cross. His son was buried in the grave. And on Sunday morning, there were people who ran to his grave. But they did not run to his grave because they needed to get him out. They didn't need to pick up his body and carry him out. They didn't need to unwrap his grave clothes. They didn't even need to help him because he was a little bit asleep and maybe he was a little tired and needed help walking out of the grave. They ran there. They didn't know what was happening. They didn't understand what their God was doing. But when they got to the tomb, they didn't have to get him out because he was already up and out of the grave. Because our God doesn't need us to save him. We need him to save us. And so they came back with the good words, the proclamation of the gospel. He is not here. He is risen. If you are in a situation in which you think you are hopeless and there is no answer and you are resigned to death, if you are looking death in the face, there is hope in the living God. If you're not a believer this morning, I'm glad that you're here. I want to say some hard words to you. 
But I think it's the word of the Lord to you this morning. No matter how rich your life might look, how much money is in your account, how big your house is, how much food you have on the table, your life is defined by death if you don't know the living God. But he invites you this morning to know him. He welcomes you to his table and says, come feast with me if you would simply believe that I have died for you. There is life in the midst of your death. Praise be to God. We have hope even in the midst of death because our God lives. Now it's also important that we're in Seraphath of Zidon because this is beyond the borders of Israel. Uh, kind of common thinking at that time is that gods were territorially determined. So uh, the God of Israel, Yahweh, he was just there for Israel and he could bring life to Israel and he could save them. But you, know, you had Baal over here, you had Anat, you had Mot, you had a whole slew of other gods, Marduk, Tiamat, etc. They were gods for other people. But here what we see is that God sends his prophet outside of the promised land to show that he is not simply the God of Israel. He is not geographically contained, but rather he is the God who has created all things. He's the God who will save all nations. And so he sends his prophet to say, Israel, remember that my promise to your father Abraham was not simply that I would bless you, but through you I would bless all nations. So he not only brings life, he brings life in the midst of death, and he brings life where people don't expect he will. It's not only a place that they don't expect, but given that this is where death has come to Israel, these are not just Israel's neighbors, they are Israel's enemies. And God says, go into the heart of your enemy, and I will bring life. When we pray at our Wednesday night prayer meeting for diversity, it is not because we went to the most recent diversity, equity, and inclusion seminar. It's not because we're wrapped up in critical race theory. It's because we believe in a God who redeems people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. For me, I encountered this most profoundly in Charleston, South Carolina. At the time, I lived in New Jersey. Well, that doesn't make sense, Mark. Well, why'd you get to South Carolina? That's a great question. One morning, I walked into our church office, and I said, Mark, uh, do you want to go to Charleston? I said, I don't know why. Like, well, yesterday, nine people were murdered in Mother Emanuel Church. A white man, because of his racial hatred, walked into a church, sat through a Bible study with a group of people, and at the end of it, after they had welcomed him in, an historic black church, he murdered nine of them, including several of their pastors. We've gotten a call to our church, and there's a group of us that's going to go down and just minister in any way that we can. Would you like to go? Well, what are we going to do when we get down there? We have no idea. We just think the Lord's calling us down there. That sounds like my kind of trip. Let's go. So, packed up my bags that morning, left that afternoon to go down to Charleston to Mother Emanuel Church. We had no idea what was ahead of us. We went down in front of Mother Emanuel Church and there's crowds, just didn't know what to do. One of our men just got up on a stool and began to proclaim the gospel. The crowds swarmed around him to hear the word of God and afterwards he said, we have some people here from New Jersey who are willing to pray for you. 
And the people lined up and we just rolled through people and prayed for them in various sorts of ways. The next couple of days were the most intense ministry that I've ever experienced in my life. We walked around the city and worshiped. We encountered black Hebrew Israelites confronted with their version of the gospel. And we simply ministered to people. And when I say that I did this, I got the people who were doing that, I got them water so that they could do what they were doing. I was not central to this, but I got to see it all happen. But the most significant thing that happened was on that Sunday morning when they gathered for worship as a people of God again. It had just been Wednesday when their people were murdered. This isn't a month later, it's a few days later. And as they opened their doors for worship, they let me join them for worship. An historic black church who just had a white man enter their church and murder nine of them when they welcomed them in to study the scriptures together were welcoming me, a stranger, into their sanctuary so that I could worship with them. I remember sitting there, it was an hour or so before the service started, and you could hear worship starting break, breaking out from the back. Just random worship songs, asking for the strength of God, praising God for his grace, for his mercy. What I was about to experience, I wasn't prepared for. I'd never seen anything like it, and I haven't seen anything like it since. The whole worship service was a mix of mourning and grieving combined with praising God for who he is. And I'll never forget the first words that were out of the preacher's mouth when he stood up to the pulpit. It was dead silent in the sanctuary. And the first thing that he said was, this is the day the Lord has made. And the congregation with one booming voice said, we will rejoice and be glad in it. How? How is that possible that you welcome in someone who looks like your enemy and historically for the past few hundred years, both in society and the church, has been your enemy? And how do you stand before your God and you say, this is the day the Lord has made and we will rejoice in it after such tragedy and horror and hatred and evil and sin has happened in that same building? I'll tell you why. It's because they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ that despite the fact that death looked them in the face and entered their sanctuary, they believed in a God who lives and raises the dead. And it's the closest that I've ever been to a bodily resurrection to watch the body of Christ in that place rise from the blood of their murdered saints and proclaim that the Lord still reigns. And yet I struggle to love those that may have done one wrong to me. They believe the gospel was too important. They believe that the God that they worshiped could bring life in that situation. God sent Elijah to the enemies of his people so that they might experience life. The unbelievers that you know, even if they hate you, God has sent you to them to love them, that they might know him. Because you were once an enemy of the gospel too. But God's love is demonstrated for you in this, that when you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. When you were still his enemy, Christ died for you. When you were weak, Christ died died for you. When you were ungodly, Christ died for you. And what we see in Luke 4 is a people who want that to be true for them, but not for other people. Notice, it's, they don't get mad. I mean, this is what's crazy, right? They, he, Jesus reads this passage from Isaiah, that he's going to set the captive free, right? 
He's gonna serve the poor and the oppressed. And they're like, that sounds good, that's for us. When do they get enraged? When he reminds them that God also loves the widow in Zarephath of Sidon. When do they get enraged? When he reminds them that God, even in the Old Testament, loved Naaman of Syria. Do you believe that God loves even those who hate you to the point where you are willing to suffer that they might know the one true and living God? Because even if you die at their hands proclaiming the gospel, you have hope because your God lives. He is a God of all nations. He has purchased people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and he has purchased people in Memphis, Tennessee. And I need to remember that he has purchased people on Barfield Road. That's where I live. So we see this woman, her life is marked by death, and she is hopeless, not only because she has no hope to get water or food, but also because of her her gods are dead. She has resigned herself to death. She's gathering sticks, and she's just going to go make some bread and eat it so that her, she and her son can die and the misery can be over. But the same God that raised Jesus from the dead, she's about to meet in our text. Look at verse 13. Then Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. An incredible statement. You're resigned. There, there's no hope that you have. You're going to go eat your last meal and die with your son. Don't fear death. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a small loaf uh, from it and bring it out to me. Afterward, you may make some for yourself and your son. Now, that's a pretty presumptuous dude, right? Hey, I don't have any food. That's cool. Go make me some first. Then after that, you can find whatever you need, but uh, yo, this is about me. It does seem pretty presumptuous and like an arrogant thing. You know, if I walked up to somebody who didn't have food and I was like, hey, make me some food first, then uh, you can go get some for yourself if you can find it. But it's not that presumptuous. Why? Verse 14, for this is what the Lord God of Israel says. The flour jar will not become empty. The oil jug will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. The reason he says, hey, go make me some first, and then you will be able to make some after, is because he believes the word of, the God, of God that has been spoken to him. And that is, when you make that, and you think that you're all out, that you don't have anything left, that you're going to die, you have no more flour, you have no more oil to eat, that's exactly when God is going to provide more. So by faith, do what I've told you to say, because God said he's going to provide for you. And incredibly, incredibly, this woman, who is not of the people of Israel, not within the covenant, hears this word, and perhaps out of her hopelessness, clinging to the one last thing that might give her hope, she goes and she does it. Verse 15, so she proceeded to do according to the word of Elijah. Then the woman, Elijah, and her household ate for many days, life in the midst of death, hope in the midst of hopelessness. The flour jar did not become empty and the oil jug did not run dry according to the word of the Lord he had spoken through Elijah. He's the God of life in the midst of hopelessness. He's the God of life in the midst of death. I want to consider something as we look at this text. 
in the next few verses after this that we didn't read, uh, her son is going to die. And Elijah's going to raise him from the dead. We already read a little bit about this battle between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And there we're going to see lightning come from heaven. And then we're going to see a storm cloud come for the first time in three years. And these mighty and powerful acts of God. It reminds you of, of things like the Exodus. It reminds you of splitting the waters so that the people of God can walk on dry ground with walls of water on either side. It reminds you of the pillar of fire that kept away the enemies of God. It reminds you of these mighty and wonderful deeds that we've read about in the Gospel of John as we look at Jesus healing people, knowing what's in people's hearts and doing amazing and profound things and wonders and signs. And oh, we long for those things. Oh, and it would be beautiful if they happened. But let's not skip past this story first. I think what would have been remarkable is how unremarkable this miracle was. If you had walked by her house, you would not know anything had happened. The living God was there, and yet, if I had kind of looked around and said, I wonder what's going on, why are they living? You would not have been able to see anything. The, the glory of God didn't fill her house like it did the temple when Solomon prayed. There wasn't this little single rain cloud, you know, over her house where it wasn't raining anywhere else. We're like, man, that's what's happening. God's causing it to rain on her. I wonder what's going on over there, right? Kind of... Kind of like in uh, Frozen, right? The little snow cloud that keeps him frozen the whole time. No? You should go watch that movie if you haven't. But there's not this little single rain cloud. There's nothing that you would be able to look out from the outside and say, oh, she worships the God who created all things. And yet he's there. He's there in a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil each morning. We wouldn't have heard a thunderous voice from heaven. We wouldn't have seen the miracle happen. Yet every morning she woke up, there was the flour, there was the oil, where there had been none the night before. It was enough to get them through the day, to sustain their life in the midst of death. And it's important that we see that all of this is according to God's word. Now here's what I want you to think about. There's not some crazy thing that you can see that you can point to be like, there's the living God. And yet it was according to his word. And I want you to think about the rich theology that this widow knows because she recognizes that what seems unremarkable to the passerby is actually a miracle of the word of God. If we asked her, do you believe that God creates by his word and that he creates something out of nothing? Oh, yes. Why? Because every night when I went to sleep, there was nothing. But in the morning, when I looked, there was something in accordance with the word that was spoken through the prophet Elijah. Do you believe that God's mercies are new every morning? Oh, yes. Why? Because I had resigned myself and my son to die. But every morning, God in his mercy sustained our lives. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Oh yes, how? Because every bit of bread I take, I know as a taste of his goodness, his mercy, and his kindness toward me. Do you believe that the one who promised is faithful? Oh yes, why? Because he has been true to every word that he has spoken to me. Sometimes I miss where God is at work 
Because while I'm looking for some extraordinary display of power that he hasn't promised me, I miss the miracle at my dinner table. Let's say that again. Most convicting thing looking at this text this week. Sometimes I miss where God is at work because while I'm looking for some extraordinary display of his power that is not in accordance with his word, not something that he has promised, I miss the miracle at my dinner table. The miracle at my dinner table might look different from yours. Sometimes it's Chick-fil-A. Sometimes it's grilled steak. Sometimes it's turkey burgers. Sometimes it's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But all of it is a gift from God. The other miracles at my table is I have a wife that loves me. That is God's mercy and his grace. Undeserving. I have four kids that I don't deserve. Even more than that, I have a roof over my head. I have breath in my lungs. And if I were paying attention to what the word of God says about who he is, I would recognize that in all these things that we would call mundane and ordinary and boring, there is God's faithfulness to me. Why? Because his word says that he gives men life, breath, and all things. And so while I'm looking for him to do something, he's doing everything around me. While I'm looking for his kingdom to come, and mighty displays of his power and revival in the city of Memphis, which I would love to see happen. Don't get me wrong, but he hasn't promised that it's going to happen at least in my lifetime. I'm missing the way that Jesus told me to pray for his kingdom. Do you remember that when the, gospel, when the, when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray? He said, pray like this. Our Father, holy is your name. Your kingdom and heaven on earth, your kingdom, our Father who art in heaven. I'm going to mess up the thing. Look at that. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what is the next thing that he says? Give us this day our daily bread. The first thing that he says after inviting the kingdom of heaven to come to earth Give us this day our daily bread. We are missing what God is doing around us because we refuse to believe that he works in the ordinary things. And yet, the only reason that we are able to exist, to take another breath, to eat any food, the only reason that the universe still holds together is it is held together by his word. I wonder if we were not so enamored by the things of the world and what they think we ought to expect from God. And we focused more on what God said he's constantly doing around us if we wouldn't be a little bit more thankful, if we would be less bitter, if we wouldn't love, if we would recognize his mercy and grace for what it is to us in Christ. Tish Harrison Warren wrote a book called The Liturgy of the Ordinary. I'm going to read a couple of things from her because I think that they're helpful. She writes this, Alfred Hitchcock said, movies are life with the dull bits cut out. The boring parts aren't there. Car chases and first kisses, interesting plot lines and good conversation. We don't want to watch our lead character going on a walk or stuck in traffic or brushing his teeth, at least not for very long and not without a good soundtrack. We tend to want the Christian life with the dull bits cut out. 
And in so doing, we miss where God is at work constantly in our lives. She says this, every new day, this is the turn my life must take. I'm living this life, the life right in front of me, this one where marriages struggle, this one where we aren't living as we thought we might or as we hoped we would, this one where we are weary, where we want to make a difference, but we're not sure even where to start, where we have to get dinner on the table or the kids' teeth brushed, where we have back pain, which I have, and boring weeks, which I also have, although fewer of because of my kids, where our lives look small, where we doubt, where we wrestle with meaninglessness, where we worry about those we love, where we struggle to meet our neighbors and love those closest to us, where we grieve, where we wait. Do you believe that in those things where you are hopeless that God is at work, the living God can speak a word? And on this particular day, she writes, Jesus knows me in the midst of my worry, in my grieving, in my loss, in my struggle, in my wrestle. He knows me and declares me his own. On this day, he is redeeming the world. He's never stopped. On this day, he is advancing his kingdom. On this day, he is calling us to repent and to grow. On this day, he is teaching his church to worship. On this day, he is drawing near to us. And on this day, he is making a people all his own. How I spend this ordinary day in Christ is how I will spend my entire Christian life. We keep waiting for the God that the life that God has for us. The, the life that God has for you is the life that you are currently living. And that doesn't mean that you resign yourself to hopelessness and boring because here's the God who shows up to a widow and brings life in the mundane, ordinary things of life, a little flour and a little oil to sustain her life in the midst of death. I'll finish with this story about Mary Russell. Mary Russell is a widow from a church in Massachusetts. Uh, she was, uh, by the world's account, if you were to walk by her, she's an unremarkable woman. When I met her, she was 83 years old. I was doing youth ministry in a church. And the only thing I knew about her is she had been a missionary in the Philippines for 30 years. And now she was back. And she led a small Sunday school Bible study of about four women. And she was there every week. She was there at prayer. Wednesday night prayer meeting. She was there for Sunday school. She was there for the service. Anytime the doors of the church were open, she was there. I had just started youth ministry and I had no idea what I was doing. I was 21 years old. I was basically a youth myself. And so I would invite the older people in the church to come and speak and tell their story of faithfulness. 83 years of faithfulness with Mary Russell. Our kids needed to hear that story. I needed to hear that story. I thought the story would go something like this. I was a teenager, God spoke to me, I got saved, went and do mission stuff, saw God do amazing things, and I came back, and he's still doing amazing things. Great. Hey, guys, believe in that God, right? Listen to Mary. She's awesome. She told her story a little bit differently. Uh, she started off by saying, you know, I once was a very beautiful woman, which at 21 years old I found humorous. Now that I'm almost 40, I find sobering, <laughs> as what little beauty that I have is quickly fading. And she said, you know, many men would ask me out. I was like, well, look at this. Mary's just, she's not scared anymore. She's old. She's proud of what she was. 
And she said, but I didn't go on many dates. In fact, I didn't go on any dates. She was like, because, and take notes, if you want to ward off a man who's pursuing you, take this, ask this question. She said, I would ask this question. I knew what God was calling me to do, and so I'd ask any man who showed interest, are you willing to go to another country and die for the name of Jesus there? She said, for some reason, nobody wanted to go on a date with me. But she knew what God was calling her to do. And so uh, she didn't date anybody. She ends up going to missionary training. And there she meets a man who's willing to go to another country and die. He's there for missionary training, right? So they, they fall in love. They do that whole thing. They get married. They're about to go to the Philippines. And he dies. Now, at this point, as a youth minister, I'm like, whoo, Mary, that was supposed to go a different way. Like you waited for your man right? You got married. Then y'all went to the Philippines together, right? And y'all, you had a bunch of kids and you had the family and you saw people come to Christ. And she talked about her husband dying after he had been faithful to every word that God had told her. She said, I don't know why the Lord took my husband. Then she just moved on. And I was like, well, this is even worse. You didn't even learn anything from it. Not only did you faithfully obey God and, and you're looking for this husband, you got him, then he dies. You don't even know why. Because there's not some kind of moral lesson we could take from this. What's going on? And she just quickly moves on. She's like, so I went to the Philippines anyway. It was there for 30 years. We planted churches. We preached the gospel. We saw people come to faith. And their church is still there because of the work that we were doing. All right, good. Now come back and tell me what you learned about why your husband died. And she does. She comes back. And she goes, I still don't know why the Lord took my husband. Mary, you got to bring it home. <laughs> and she did. She said, I don't know why the Lord took my husband, but I, can know, I know that I can trust the God who sent his son to die for me. The remarkable thing about Mary was her simple faith. She knew that even in the midst of the death of the one that she had waited for and loved so much, that even in the midst of that, she believed in a God who lived, who she didn't have to die for in order to wake him up, but that he died for her and brought her to life. And because she knew that he could trust his word and his promises and his plan for her life, she walked faithfully in whatever he had for her. I want to be more like Mary. I want to be more like the widow here in the story in 1 Kings 17. I want to be a person who believes more and more that we have hope, even in the midst of death, because our God lives. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are always at work. We thank you that even in the things that we would pass by and see un, as unremarkable, you are at work. We thank you that you are a God who speaks a word of promise to your people and that you will never, ever give up on those promises. You do not turn back on them, you pursue them. You do not turn your back on us, but you pursue us. And we thank you that we don't have to ascend to the heavens to pull you down. We don't have to go into the depths of death or hell to bring you back up. But we thank you that you sent your son to die for us and rise again and sit at your right hand. And we thank you that you are coming back to get us.
we thank you that we can have hope even in the midst of death because you are the living God. We pray that you would be with us. We pray that those who don't know you this morning would come to know you for the first time. Encourage our faith and bring others to faith. We ask this in the great name of Jesus. Amen.